This is Melissa Fordlocken. Rosalie Petrowski. Susan, Seraph, and Jess. Editors for the Washington Square Review. Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect the unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our audio town square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from around the world to Lansing. Hi, this is Melissa Fordlocken, editor for the Washington Square Review. I'm joined today by Taffeta Chime, one of the authors for our forthcoming issue. I've asked Taffy, she said that we can call her Taffy when we're talking to her, uh, Taffy to read the opening of her selected piece. All right. My name is Taffeta, but everyone calls me Taffy. I have never met another Taffy or Taffeta, though I have heard we exist. But in March of 2010, I got a friend request on Facebook from a Taffy. I saw we had two mutual friends, so I accepted her request, excited to see another Taffy. This Taffy was quite a bit older than I was. I had just graduated college, and she was a proud grandmother. She soon wrote me a message. Hi, I don't expect a response, just wanted to say I'm glad someone in the world has this name. I wrote her back that I was also ecstatic to see another Taffy. I told her that it was actually a nickname, and she answered, my full legal name is Taffy. You'd be surprised how many people ask me what my real name is. Then they're confused when I tell them that's it. If you're ever in my neck of the woods, send me a message and I'll be glad to shake your hand. We sent messages back and forth to get to know each other. She was a retired teacher and had lived near my hometown for 25 years. We talked about how it was strange that we had lived so close to each other and had never met. Yeah, well, even my kids are older than you, so if I did run into you, I wouldn't know you, she wrote. I feel like I could hear her chuckle through the computer. We talked about our mutual friends, and then she said she found me when she was trying to get back to her own Facebook profile page. I typed in Taffy, and your name popped up. That was just too weird. While we messaged, I took some time to look through her profile page and saw that she posted she was having surgery. So when she wrapped up the conversation by wishing me a good afternoon, I told her that she would have a successful surgery. Beautiful. Thank you for reading that. The opening is quite lighthearted, but the piece takes a little bit of a shift, and we're not going to tell the listeners what the shift is, because you'll need to read it yourself. But let us know what was going on in your life when you wrote it and how you came to write this piece. Well, this, this piece is a 100% true story, and it's just, uh, it was a very surreal moment to me. And I think as a writer, you have these moments that either you're experiencing, or you see, or you hear, and you just you have the, the need to explore it in writing. And I forget exactly why I originally wrote this. I think it was for some sort of prompt in like a community writing group or something, but I've sort of held on to it and um, have kept it as a creative nonfiction piece. And I just think it's an interesting exploration of identity. And it, I have an unusual perspective as someone who has an unusual name and has been through this experience of sort of looking through a strange, distorted mirror in ways. So was the process of writing the piece cathartic, or did it give you a sense of closure on the event? I think so, yeah. I think, you know, in the piece, you don't find out sort of what happens to Taffy, and I didn't either until 
a while later, I don't remember now the the time that had passed, but I I felt a lot of regret for not getting to meet her and for um, just having that opportunity pass by that I had looked so forward to. And so I guess that exploring it was a bit of a catharsis and some closure. But again, I think the main reason for showing it is that, you know, when you have people, you know, I I know lots of people who share names with others and I often wonder what does that feel like to like know somebody who has your name? Like to me, my name is my identity. And the fact that there's no one else I know with my name, it's just very bizarre to find somebody who has my name, you know, and it, it just brings up a whole different world of feelings that I've never experienced before. And so I, I really just wanted to kind of share what that felt like. <laughs> well, what I, one of the things that I liked about the piece is that it does, it reaches out to people in on the issue of the unique name, but the other part, the message is something that other people can relate to. And I think that's one of the really special things about the piece is that it works on both those levels. Mm-hmm. When you wrote the piece, were you thinking mostly about the name issue or the other themes? Um, I think there, there's a lot of, you know, it's hard to talk about it without talking about it. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of questions of mortality. And um, I think that that is kind of sort of the underlying message that I think is the gravitas of, of the piece is not only observing someone who shares the same identity with me, but then we have a shared mortality and kind of coming to terms with that and seeing that was, um, again, just surreal. A surreal is really the most apt word, I think, to describe the whole experience. And yeah, so observing that mortality and seeing how people would respond to the identity in that context was something that I really wanted to explore and share about. Let's talk a little bit about your creative process in general. Because one of the unique things about you is that you've written a lot of different genres, poetry, creative nonfiction, fiction, novels. How do you think about the creative process and how do you work through it? Well, like I said, I think a big part of it is just there, there are these moments that you just are like, whoa, I need to write about that. Um, and sometimes those it feels more natural for that to be explored in poetry, especially if it's a really emotional moment or even like a like a vignette kind of thing I feel like those need to be explored more in poetry but I think at my heart of the craft of writing I'm a storyteller and I love people and so you know novels and short stories and that kind of thing are more to explore humanity through exploring characters and people's lives and the arcs that they live and then if those characters are real then you have to do more of a nonfiction slant to it. <laughs> How about things like setting? How do you think about that? It sounds like events spark your curiosity. And then how do you work the setting into that? Um, it's really dependent, I think, on, on the piece itself. Um, my second novel, The Last, setting is a very important part of the story. And part of the reason why I chose to write that as a novel was to kind of explore setting more. Honestly, Uh, incorporating setting in my writing is something that I thought for a while was a weakness of mine. There were a lot of times that it sort of felt like, you know, that, that um, typical prompt that you get in a writing class where it's like, put these two characters in a closet and see how they act. I felt like a lot of times, a lot of my stories just felt like that. And so the last was actually my undergraduate thesis project. So it was not just about the creative process, but also 
working on the craft and incorporating a lot more research into it too. And so having the setting is almost like another character in some ways, right? And there are some some stories that the setting is a very important part of the piece, but then there are others that it's not. In this one, meeting Taffy, you know, I mentioned that she lived near my hometown. And the fact that, you know, I, I'm from Tennessee. I know I'm, Lansing is in Michigan. I'm far away from you guys. But we kind of live in a rural area. And Taffy is not typically like a, a Southern name, you know, like Lila May or Sarah Beth or something like that. There's not a whole lot of Taffies around here. And so I think that that made that, that choice of setting for this piece was especially poignant to see another Taffy in Robertson County, Tennessee, of all places, you know, was really unusual and unique. So yeah, I think it's really just kind of dependent on the piece, uh, the setting and the context of it can change. And um, in some pieces, it's more important and some it's not as important. It just depends on what the story itself is lending itself to. You've mentioned writing classes a couple times. So it made me curious if you could talk about your um, education as a writer and how that's played into what you produce. Oh, absolutely. So I will say I, I have been writing since I could hold a pencil pretty much. Um, my first quote unquote book was when I was seven years old <laughs> and, you know, it was on loose leaf paper, but I thought it was, you know, a New York times bestseller. And so my, my parents and some of my teachers in elementary school really noticed that I love to write and I love to craft stories. When I was in elementary school, I was put into the gifted program because of my writing. The gifted teacher that we had encouraged me to write short stories for a program called the Future Problem Solving Program, where each year they had futuristic sort of sci-fi prompts that were based on current event topics. And I did that from fourth grade all the way through high school. And it was a really interesting way to, you know, a really interesting prompt, I guess, every year to have a short story. It was 1,500 words or less every year on some topic with this required research that you had to show that you had done. And so I think that really that practice starting from fourth grade in the context of school was really what solidified my habits as a writer. And then in middle school, I started writing a ton just as a hobby. It was, you know, again, in rural Tennessee, my parents live in the middle of the woods on top of a hill in a hollow. Like I had no friends that were around to play with outside. So I would come home and write. That was what I did for fun. So I was a prolific writer in middle school just for fun. And then in high school was when I published my first novel as an independent project, again, through some of my teachers who were kind of trying to help me sort of see what this would be like professionally. And then I went to university as a creative writing student. I was an English and writing major. And um, I actually minored in theater, not because I was necessarily interested in going into theater, but because, again, I thought that some of the strengths and the focuses in theater were some of my weaknesses in writing, character development, setting development, condensed storytelling in a way. And uh, it really did strengthen my writing, I think, to take those theater classes. And then, like I said, during the undergrad time was when I wrote my second novel. And then pretty much from there, I did a lot more nonfiction work as um, a grad student, you know, a lot more research thesis type essays and that kind of thing. And then I actually entered into the education field as a teacher and taught a lot of reading and writing classes, some creative writing. And now that I am transitioning out of education and into motherhood, um, yeah, I'm kind of stepping away from education finally, both as a student and a teacher. 
but as a mom, you know, I'm, I'm still a teacher in a lot of ways. And, um, my daughter has actually just recently started to tell stories. She's four years old. I've told her recently, like, Hey, you know that your mom writes stories, right? And yeah. So the education is always there, but I really do think that I'm very thankful for my, my coaches and my teachers all throughout my education who have held my hand and saw the, the passion that I had and wanted to hone that and help me um, learn about the craft, practice the craft and see what it took to make that as a professional possibility for me. I need to take a quick sidestep and ask the question that people are wondering, did you name your daughter an unusual name? <laughs> I, I did. So this is opening a whole other can of worms. My husband and my husband is actually from China. And um, between my undergrad and my graduate year, I took a year to study abroad in China and I met him there. And so we've been married now. We just passed our ninth anniversary, actually. And we have a four-year-old and a newborn. She's about two weeks old now. And we always, like, my husband and I both have Chinese names and English names. And I think a lot of people who have language backgrounds that are so different from each other kind of have to do that, especially if the writing systems are different, the pronunciation is different. It's really hard for English speakers, for example, to pronounce my husband's name. So he, he goes by Shane. But when we found out that we were having a child we made the conscious decision of picking a name that worked in both Mandarin and English and was the same name. So my first daughter's name is Bailey, but it's spelled B-E-I-L-I, and it means jasmine bud in Mandarin. And then our second daughter, who was just born, her name is Eileen, and it's spelled A-I-L-I-N, which means like a, a shower of love in Mandarin. So they're both, you know, kind of typical English names, but they have the Mandarin spelling so that whether they are in China or the U.S. or if they are speaking Mandarin or English, they, they have their name the same. And it kind of goes back to some of those themes in meeting Taffy, where I wanted them, you know, even when I married a foreigner and we were talking about the possibility of kids, I knew that, you know, multilingual, multicultural children often have a shift in, in identity. And I wanted them to always feel like they were themselves no matter where they were. So it, I felt really strongly about giving them a name that never changed because to me, my, my name is so much a part of my identity. So yeah, so we have Bailey and Eileen, but they're spelled with the Mandarin spelling. That's beautiful. You mentioned being in China and that made me wonder, how did that play into your writing? Did you were you influenced by what you experienced in China? They must have different ways of telling stories. Oh, yes, absolutely. And um, I've actually been doing more reading recently of Chinese literature. And my husband and I kind of have a little joke because um, my Chinese reading level is not super great. So I've been reading a lot of children's books, but it's been a lot of poetry. And I asked him, I was like, you know, I'm understanding this is another poem that pretty much just says, here comes spring. Spring is so pretty. Look at these birds. Here's some water. Here's some flowers. Am I right? And he was like, yeah, that's pretty much a lot of Chinese poetry. And I was like, I'm sure it's a lot more beautiful than that. But essentially, it's just look at this pretty scene from nature. <laughs> and I'm really downplaying it. I mean, the language is beautiful. But just with my elementary understanding of it, it just feels like there's a bird. Here's a flower. Here's some water. <laughs> um but it, it really is interesting. Nature, again, going back to setting, nature is such a huge part of Chinese literature. 
and even the stories that are more focused on character and on events, the, the setting is very important to, to what's happening. I think about one story that I read that was about a young boy who was at a well and the well in his, in his village was very much a part of the story. And um, so things like that, where the, the, the setting is such a huge uh, part of the story itself. But yeah, my time in China hugely influenced me, not just as a writer, but I feel like my, a lot of my life really kind of turned around uh, because of my, my experience in China. I have written some poems that are sort of multilingual and bilingual, and it's really hard to find a home for those <laughs> because, you know, especially if you're looking into English publications, there's often a question of like, okay, well, do we use the Chinese characters? Do we need to translate these in footnotes? Do we need to have the pronunciation? Because in poetry, you know, the the visuals on the page and the sounds of the words are just as important as the words themselves. And so when you incorporate another language, there's a lot of questions as to how you're going to handle that. But yeah, I, I, um, I have a lot of my writing that has international characters, multicultural experiences, multilingual diversity, I guess. Yeah, it so, sounds like your husband would be a good influence that way. Yeah. <laughs> Do you talk through your work with him? Not so much, actually. So my husband, um, I don't want to throw him under the bus, but he's not a very literary person. <laughs> so he enjoys reading some of my stuff, but a lot of it, he's kind of like, you know, this isn't my thing. And I'm like, that's fine. So we have other interests that we share, but writing and reading is not really one of them. He appreciates the work I do and he's super proud of me and everything. But as far as um, using him as a sounding board, not so much. <laughs> so who is your sounding board? Um, I'd say my first person that I typically go to is my mom. My mom is also a writer um, and she's an editor too. So a lot of times when I'm questioning, you know, does this sound okay? Or do you think that this pitch is okay? That kind of thing. I typically go to my mom first, but I have, you know, a growing network of, of writing friends and uh, former classmates and that kind of thing that I reach out to a lot too. Have you ever worked in a workshop setting? Oh yes. Yeah. Lots of times, lots of times. Beneficial? Yeah, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's kind of hit and miss sometimes with workshops. I will say that probably my favorite workshop experience was one that we kind of um, formed ourselves. You know, I think especially in school, you're sometimes forced into a workshop experience in classes or in a like a writing center or tutoring sort of situation. Or if you're in a writing group, they will ask you to be part of a workshop. But there was one writing class that I was a part of that some girls and I, um, we became really good friends and we sort of started writing together um, outside of class, just on our own projects and stuff. And it's really cool to see how we have all kind of spread out and continued writing professionally. One of those girls is now a script supervisor at Netflix. She works currently on the Cuphead show and has some other stuff that she's working on. Another girl was an editor for a magazine out of Australia, like a food and, and travel magazine that was just like, hey, cool. And then another one is more of like a songwriter, poet. Uh, she's moved to Colorado, I think now. So I still think really fondly back to, you know, the late nights of writing with those girls. And I feel like we were all kind of vibing together and sort of had the same sort of, what's the word, same sort of mindset, I guess, as far as our writing was concerned. But then, yeah, there are other workshops where you're just not vibing at all. And you're like, okay, bye. <laughs> that can be a struggle as a writer to know when to take from the workshop and when to leave behind. 
Absolutely. The reason I asked you is because you've been writing for so long. You must have dealt with that issue on more than one occasion. Oh, yes. And, you know, I think part of being a writer is developing a thick skin and sort of learning whose opinion matters and whose doesn't. And I was even just talking to my mom. She was having a frustration with reaching out to somebody to collaborate on some research. And she just kind of felt like he wasn't giving her any time of day. And I was like, you know what? That happens. And when that happens, you just say, if you don't want me, I don't want you. Bye. (laughs) And I think that, you know, you come across sometimes those people that are kind of gatekeepers and pretentious and, and it's just not helpful. So you just have to, you know, shake the dust off your sandals and go on. Yeah. So I think it's a matter of learning to trust yourself, trust your own judgment and trust your process. Mm hmm. Absolutely. So what kind of stuff are you working on now? (laughs) You mentioned that I kind of have a broad range of writing and that continues to hold true. I just recently for the month of April, April was National Poetry Month and I challenged myself to write a poem every day of the month and I did that and I'm actually kind of thinking of turning it into a chapbook. I'm also working on a creative nonfiction long project that's probably going to be sort of a fiction slash memoir, but like not mine, (laughs) someone else's memoir. Does that work? Uh, Just a biography that I'm thinking will probably be finished in anywhere from like three to five years from now. I also have some nonfiction long form ideas of like a, I'm going to talk to an editor. I know about maybe writing a book on environmentalism from a spiritual perspective. Um, I've also got some ideas in the back of my head for some more novels. So there's just, there's a whole lot of things going on. It sounds great. It'll keep you busy for a long time. Yes. If people want to check you out, check out your current work or follow you, where can they find you online? The best places to find me are um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And I actually just opened up a fan house account too. um, And those are all under Taffeta Chime. My Instagram is a private account because it has pictures of my daughters and that kind of thing. But if someone wanted to slide into my DMs, you know, and say, hey, I you know, I'm interested in your writing, then maybe we could talk. But um, Twitter, Facebook, those are the best places to find me at Taffeta Chime. Great. Well, thanks a lot for coming and spending time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me so much. Thank you for listening to our talented poets and authors. Until next time, this has been Washington Square On Air. Where we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, a publication featuring writers from the Great Lakes State, across the nation, and around the world. To find out more about The Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed sharing. of Lansing Community College. Visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College has been a proud collaborator of the Mason Promise Scholarship since 2016. The Mason Promise Scholarship is a community organization of volunteers that guarantees funding for two years of Lansing Community College education to selected Mason public school students. 
These selected students are chosen by the Mason Public Schools at the end of the fifth grade and then become a Mason Promise Scholarship through an induction ceremony. Over the course of the next six years, these students receive mentoring and support as well as introduction to career possibilities through the Pathway Program. For more information on the Mason Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu slash hope. Hey everyone, this is Jim Owens. Coming soon to LCC Connect is a new show called Headroom, where we talk about all things essential to mental health and well-being. To find out more, visit lccconnect.org. What is dedication? My biggest fear in the middle of my addiction was that my kids wouldn't have a father. I overdosed on heroin, and I lived. And I started thinking, you know what? This isn't my story. My desire to change had finally outweighed my desire to stay the same. I felt powerless for so much of my life. It's important to me that my kids are empowered and truly believe that if, if they can think it, they can do it. I definitely had to become a better man to be a better father. For the first time, I, I finally feel like I'm exactly where I should be, where I want to be. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. The Job Training Center at Lansing Community College provides two-month job training opportunities that are free to eligible participants. Training courses range from information technology to administrative assisting. For more information, visit lcc.edu slash jtctraining. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, a podcast and radio program presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. Most any contemporary musical style can trace its roots back to the blues. Time Signatures explores the blues and its musical connections with captivating interviews, lively discussions, and news from the world of the blues. And now, here he is, your host, Jim Irvin. Thank you very much, Parker. Thank you so much. And thank you to you for being here on Time Signatures. I'm Jim Irvin. And uh, my guest today, I'm, I'm not going to go through the whole, the whole long introduction that I did on the first round because there's just too much there. We want to get back to the uh, discussion. But John Namath, uh, four-time Blues Award winner, Blues Music Award winner, you've been nominated like 20 times, I believe. Is that right? Oh, who knows? But I've won five. <laughs> oh, you've won five. Okay, I stand corrected. Yeah. That's yeah, great. That's um, crazy. Soul blues, soul blues album, soul blues artist, uh, harmonica, yep. vocalist, and traditional blues album. Wow. And we are going to talk about uh, the 2023 because that's that's a big one for you. That was when you won uh, two more of these this year, correct? That's right. Okay, yeah. So we're going to get into that. I want to step back a little bit, though, and uh, we're kind of progressing through your career here. Uh, when you were, uh, were signed to the Blind Pig Records in 2007, uh, released the Magic Touch, which was produced by Anson Funderburg, then Love Me Tonight in 09, Name the Day in 2010, 
both of which landed at number six on the Blues Billboard charts. But along the way, uh, before these two albums came to be, Elvin Bishop reached out to you and recruited you for a project, correct? Yeah, he uh, had me um, on his Blues Rolls On album. Mm -hmm. And I think that was released in 2008. And uh, we cut that record at his studio. It was cool, man. Uh, I sang half the songs on an album, which had Derek Trucks, George Thorogood, B.B. King, wow. uh, James Cotton, and Angela Straley, and Kim Wilson, and many great players and legendary musicians uh, backing the band up. And uh, so that was a hell of an honor to be in that situation. Now, from that point on, you really were on your way. Uh, as we talked about, you uh, compiled some 20 Blues Music Award nominations, and then you won uh, your BMAs, one for the Best New Artist Debut Recording in the Sean Costello Rising Star Award. Uh, Memphis Grease hit number four on the Billboard Blues charts, and then you took the 2014 BMA for Best Soul Blues Artist, and in 2015... Uh, best Blues Album for this project. And by the way, that was about the time you relocated to Memphis, correct? Yeah, I had actually relocated to Memphis in 2013. Okay. And got the Memphis Grease Album then, which was released in 2014. And uh, yeah, and, and I used the, the Memphis band, the Bo Keys, on that album. Now, I have to ask you, I mean, being in Memphis has got to be especially for a blues singer, it's got to be an incredible experience, but I would imagine that would really impact your, your musical chops, if you will. Yes. Oh, for sure. Memphis is a blues town. Mm -hmm. The, the way people speak, the groove of the life here and, uh, and the jokes and the delivery and all of that kind of thing. It's it's very blues, and then and then the gospel music here, which is a huge impact on the music, is mm -hmm. uh, it's ground zero. It's the root. It's the motherland. John, describe, if you will, your creative process when you're writing. Do you, do you start with the lyrics? Do you start with the music? What's what's your process? Oh, I start with the lyrics. You know, every song is a story. You know. Uh, I come up with the title, you know, a hook that I think is funny, you know, or or uh, or interesting to be a tune, and then I build up the uh, I build up the story around it, and, mm -hmm. and uh, I write in the blues style, which sometimes the song will mean two different things. I use innuendo and and double entendres. Uh, I was going to say, you know, I wouldn't think you were a normal blues singer if you didn't do that. Yeah, well, believe it or not, I mean, these days, most songwriters, they don't do that anymore. They just, they just, you know, because the listener doesn't have the imagination like uh, like the listeners used to have back in the day. You know, you, people want it just spelled out for them. Okay. Uh, but uh, that's the way I do it. Well, I was just going to say, because, you know, when we... Uh, I went down to the Jackson Blues Fest uh, back here in spring and Taranzo was in town from Chicago and, and, you know, he put on a great show, but there was plenty of double entendres and just, it was a good time. It was, you know, 
getting a getting a full taste of the Chicago Blues with him and Joanna Connor was just incredible. Absolutely a blast. Are you talking about Jackson, Mississippi? No, no, Jackson, Michigan. I, I probably should have said that. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, well, Toronto, man. Yeah, he's been around a long time. I don't know yeah. how old he is, but he's old enough to know better. And, uh, yeah, I think a lot of that, like when I talked about, like, in, in the previous uh, interview about um, being down in Mississippi and having the audience, you know, understanding all the lyrics and mm-hmm. I think a lot of what I write these days is is over the heads of of probably eighty percent of the the listeners. I don't think they're, but you're a blues fan. You're a blues listener, you know. So you right. you you enjoy the music for all those kind of things. But you know that's what's cool about the blues is that you can listen to the music and just enjoy the feeling of the music and and the melodies and the grooves. You can enjoy the the original intent of the lyrics without even getting into the double entendre. Yeah, um, well, and I think one of the things for for me as a listener, I want to have music that makes me feel. And you know, the, a lot of your music I've noticed, and I I don't I don't just buy CDs to support the musician. I buy the CDs because I enjoy what I hear. And I, the, one of the things that I noticed on your, your newest album, Live from Fallout, from the Fallout Shelter, is Come and Take It. When I heard that song, it, was, it just became instantly an absolute jam for me. Um, and I guess the best way that I can, I'll just describe it as a, uh, a non-professional reviewer. I love the strolling harp, the guitar licks, the vocals. Everything was just off the hook. And... Um, if I'm not mistaken, the way I was exposed to that was your appearance at the Heritage Blues Festival in Wheeling just a couple weekends ago, and um, I was like, "Man, this I gotta I gotta get this CD. It's all there is to it." I'm glad you like that tune. Yeah, see, that tune's one of those tunes where the the term "come and take it" mm-hmm. has been in the United States ever since the trials and tribulations with the British government, right? And it's it's also become a slogan for the folks that want to own um, an AR-15 with a bump stock and uh, fully automatic, yep. you know? Yep. So the song can appeal to so many different people. And then the underlying message of the song is trying to entice a woman Right to come and make love, and so <laughs> it it has uh, it has uh, it has two uh, two things going on at the same time, and and depending on who I'm singing to, uh, I can pitch the tune to different people and get uh, get uh, different reactions out of the song. And I and I imagine you you probably based on what I saw when I was watching that video. Um, it seemed like the crowd was really into it. No matter, no matter how you were pitching it, they loved it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it fires up the imagination. Like I look into the crowd and I see the imagination of the, of the different, uh, of the different people listening to the tune. And, 
And there's a little bit in that song for everybody. You're listening to Time Signatures. I am your host, Jim Irvin. And along with me is five-time Blues Music Award winner, John Namath. I got that corrected. And uh, we're just having a good time talking about the blues and about his career. And uh, we mentioned uh, the Heritage Blues Festival down in Wheeling, West Virginia. Did you happen to catch Matthias or Ben Levin by chance, the piano player? Uh, no, I didn't see their shows. Okay. I, w- I was wondering because they're, they're two young up-and-comers. Of course, Matthias won the uh, 2023 uh, IBC for the group and also for guitarist. And then Ben Levin is on his way. He's uh, from Cincinnati and in just an absolutely incredible pianist. But it's so much fun, and it does my heart good because I'm, I'm older. I'm 58, and I love seeing the younger generation come to the fore. I love seeing that. Do you get a chance to, to mentor some of these younger uh, musicians along the way? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm a friend of, uh, with Matthias, and okay. uh, I don't know Ben, and I'm not familiar with his music, but I'll check it out. Um, yeah, but I I dig all these folks that are coming up. I like this guy Blind Boy Paxton, and the guitar player that I had in my band in Wheeling. One of the guitar players, uh, his name is Yates McKendry. I don't know if he won or not, but he got it. He was nominated for uh, Best New Artist for the BMAs. Okay. And then guy, Mac McDonald, who was the other guitar player. And and I think this guy is one of the greatest dudes in the United States. Uh, But he's a real traditional blues player. And it's it's tough to get ahead if if you're a traditional blues guy. And uh, I like this guy, John Tavius Willis who's a really fantastic uh, player and Kingfish is, uh, I like Kingfish oh, a yeah. lot too. There's so many out there, you know, and it's, it's great. There's so much talent. I just wish they all could really make a good living off of this stuff. You know, uh, that's my hope, you know, for the future of the blues. Yeah. I, I have to agree with you. And uh, you know, that's one of the things that, and I, I, I got a little bit of an education when we went to see Buddy Guy uh, over in Grand Rapids during his farewell tour this summer. And he was talking about how the blues took off in Europe before they ever took off in the United States. To me, it, it, it bothered me. It's like, I, I don't know why we were so hesitant back then. I don't know why we're so hesitant now where, you know, we don't, we, we can't embrace, or a lot of people can't embrace. I do. I, I love traditional, but I love, the, uh, I love the fusion, too. I like a little bit of everything. But it's fun for me when I see these new guys come out. King Solomon Hicks is another one. Yeah, yeah. Just a, a whole bunch. I mean, and, and you get, you know, people like you, people like Larry McRae, people like Toronzo, you know, the, the standards that have been, you know, blazing the trail, if you will. And um, I, I like the fact that there's such a variety out there that are encompassed. It's not, it's not being just a straight line. You know, the blues aren't just in a box, if you will. Well, the blues is really, you know, it's, it's the music of the people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the music of black people. And I think as time goes on, more white people can sympathize and, and relate to the music 
and blues is in everything else. It's in, you know, that guy, that country star, Chris Stapleton, you know, I mean, yes, man, he wouldn't be anything blues. Yep. And you got a guy like Lil Nas who had the big, is a black man who had the biggest number one hit of all time in country music. And he's, he's very blues influenced. But I think a lot of it comes down to this. Little Nas was at number one longer than any other country artist as a black man. And Nashville decided to remove him from the country music billboard mm. because he's, he's a gay black man. And you just can't have a gay black guy at number one in country music and owning it with, um, I can't remember the guy who sang Achy Breaky Heart. Um, <laughs> Billy Ray Cyrus. Billy Ray Cyrus is singing on that tune. But they owned it. And I think what I'm seeing right now is that, you know, I love Jesus more than anybody else. But, man, you know, there's so much Jesus on the bottom end of the dial. But to have a full-time blues radio station in the United States, impossible. Well, and, and uh, yeah, I agree with you. And let me let me throw this in there. Uh, Sirius XM Radio is another one. I two channels that I've found that is the traditional the BB King Blues Channel, and then there's another one out there. But that's it. And there's there should be you've got all these channels for the you know music from the from the classic rock era. Why couldn't you have three or four blues channels? We totally can, and, and the reason why those channels are on there and, and they've been on there forever and they haven't been taken off is because the customers listen to them, you know, and they've got sure. the data research. Or even for that matter, you know, even like the traditional uh, country music, which, mm-hmm. you know, you, 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 don't, you don't have that. I think it's just one of those things where, you know, the government doesn't like um stuff they can't control and the big pop market doesn't like people that play their own instruments all the time you know they don't want to have a million bands out there making money they would like to narrow it down to like you know a good few hundred bands that are making all the money rather than you know twenty thousand bands making money right so it's it's business and it's politics to make it difficult for the blues. And I think Europe digs it because, you know, Europe gets a feeling for what the United States is going through, through the blues and through rap and, and black music. Um, black people will help or like almost like the barometer of the health of the country. Um, as a minority and that's really fantastic at music like for instance um, this was pretty cool this gal and I think she might be from Sweden but she sent me a clip of her performing a song of mine called keep the love a coming and there's lyrics in there like a whole lot of families are living on the street and their poor children ain't got nothing to eat now the government doesn't want any of that on the you know, it's just like you can't find rap on the radio either, you know. Uh, you know, they, they have just, you know, pop, hip-hop, and, and all the stuff that doesn't upset people. 
you know, that's the world we're living in in the United States. Uh, they put the candy coating on everything, you know, and try to make it seem like everything's Ruby do rather than talking about the My guest is John Namath. You are listening to Time Signatures with Jim Irvin and uh, having a good conversation. But here we are. We've only got a few minutes left out of this segment. And, uh, man, I got to tell you, you have just made this absolutely fly by so quickly. But I want to ask you, a young lady by the name of Mary Lou, uh, former vice president from the Sacramento Blues Society, was telling me about a time at the Bender when you were doing the – the the classic song Kool-Aid Pickle and a bunch of the ladies, including her, had inflatable pickles and they were having a time waving them around. Do you remember that that event? Oh yeah. I'll never forget it. I love my fans. <laughs> greatest people on the earth, man. And 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 I remember those ladies and and they had their inflatable pickles out there dancing around with them in and uh in Las Vegas. And I might add that the guitar player on the Feeling Freaky record, which uh, has the Kool-Aid Pickle song on it, okay, is Johnny Rhodes from Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, I know Johnny. Very cool. Great, really, really great player. And uh, yeah, that song came about because I was in Jackson, Mississippi, performing down there. And as I was walking back to my dressing room, these ladies hollered at me. Uh, as I was walking by, and these ladies were renting a Kool-Aid pickle tent. <laughs> and they had every flavor of Kool-Aid pickle you could imagine. And oh, my goodness. They gave me one of each flavor, and and the band and I, we, we ate Kool-Aid pickles and watched Macy Gray. <laughs> Very, that, was, that would be cool. I mean, I, I would love to see Macy Gray, but it, it, it's the, the fan base in the blues genre to me i think they seem to be some of the most personable uh fans in the world but i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the blues artists are also very reachable i mean i didn't have to go through and talk to you know 15 people your pr guy and stuff like that to get you to come on with the program i just reached out to you and found you on social media and you said yes yeah well i'm not that busy (laughs) <laughs> um, like uh, maybe a gigantic pop star, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I think the economics of the music keeps uh, keeps all the artists very grounded, you know, and uh, and available. And you know, when we're all doing our shows, almost every blues artist is is gonna come out into the audience and say hello. I mean, Buddy Guy, he puts on a wireless and walks the watch the crowd and yes sir and he stopped about three feet in front of me when we went to see him in june i saw him walk out in the crowd and i walked over to see him and he stopped in front of me and he jammed for about 10 seconds and it was one of the coolest things in the world yeah i think that you know because the music like i said before blues is the music of the people and blues musicians are really just regular people not trying to be somebody they ain't they're just being who they are and and who, who isn't somebody that lo- doesn't love somebody else? You know, there's so much love in the music. You know, the music is love, and 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 the desire for love, and the desire for for freedom, and and uh, good times. John Namath, it has been a pleasure to have you on once again. 
we'd like you to share where people can find your music. Where can they where can they go to book you? Where where can they find John Namath? You can go to johnnamath.com. J-O-H-N-N-E-M-E-T-H.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Instagram. I have a store on my website. Yes. You can buy my music record stores you can buy my music on amazon itunes spotify wherever you wherever you want to listen to your music you know however you get it i'm, yes. I'm out there and i get your support and and do me a favor if you do happen to go over to his page you need to get a copy of fallout shelter and you've got to listen to come and take it it is bar none like i said my absolute jam and i think you'll enjoy it once again john we appreciate having you with us And for our listeners, we appreciate you being here as well. Uh, By all means, tune in again, and we are going to do our best to help keep the blues alive. We'll see you soon. This has been Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. For more information on cabs, visit capitalareablues.org. You can find this episode and past episodes at lccconnect.org. The Time Signatures theme song, Michigan Roads, is used by permission and was written by Root Doctor, featuring Freddie Cunningham. Until next time, keep on keeping the blues alive. Featuring the staff, faculty, students, and others that helped to make Lansing's Premier College what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Coming in October to the Black Box Theater, Lansing Community College presents Isaac's Eye by Lucas Nath. This play tells the story of a young Isaac Newton exploring his dreams and longings and what drove this rural farm boy to become one of the greatest thinkers in modern science. Performances October 6th through the 14th. For more information, visit lcc.edu slash showinfo. As a young teenage boy, I didn't even know what autism was. How do you even spell that? A few years later, I heard that a friend's cousin's son had been diagnosed with autism. I still wasn't sure what that really meant. When I went to college, my roommate's brother had autism. When I moved to the city for work, my best friend called me and told me his son had been diagnosed with autism. We were both in shock. I still remember the day I walked into the house and saw that look on my wife's face. I knew something was wrong. I'll never forget how I felt when she said, Our son has autism. Autism is getting closer to home. Today, one in 110 children is diagnosed with autism. That's a 600% increase in the last 20 years. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Melissa Kaplan, and I host a show called Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. It's all about the creativity in our classrooms and on campus here at LCC and the connections we have with the community. You can catch Galaxy Forum here on LCC Connect or listen anytime at lccconnect.org.
the Lansing Community College Foundation provides scholarships that make education possible, change students' lives, and uplift our community. Students may apply for scholarships November 1st through January 31st. Learn more at lcc.edu scholarships. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. You're listening to Art Happens Here, the podcast that explores the often curious and occasionally amazing art installations on, in, and around the campuses of Lansing Community College. I'm your host, Bruce Mackley. Designing art installations over time, um, the thought process usually starts out extremely ambitious. Um, sky's the limit in your mind, you know. And then over time, the projects usually suffer from a series of compromises, uh, budgetary constraints, logistics, and so on. And ultimately, the finished product usually turns out well, uh, but it never quite hits that, that mark that you originally had in your mind with regard to the wow factor. Once in a while, um, there will be a project that will go in the exact opposite direction. It'll start out modest and it'll wind up to be uh, fantastically well executed and exceed all expectations. This is one of those projects. Our CAD lab at uh, LCC West, uh, home of our technical careers division, our CAD lab computer-aided design was um, calling this room unremarkable is doing it a service, was doing it a service. Um, it was a basic cinder block classroom with 15 or 20 or so workstations, CAD workstations for our students, and uh, extremely underwhelming with the, you know, just, just very all business. I mean, there's nothing to it. And we wanted to do something more visually appealing than a mere wall graphic or just some color somewhere. There had to be something, something we could bring to bear to reflect the, the discipline that was being taught and understood in this space. So um, we started thinking about the ceiling. What could we do with the ceiling? Or we hang something from the ceiling? Without going through all the moves, describing all the different ideas we had, we wound up, we landed on building a coffer. I think that's what it's called, a coffer. It's a recessed area that goes up into the ceiling. I think this one, had, it was like 36 inches deep up into the ceiling, 10 or 12 feet wide by 20 feet long. I mean, it was pretty big, uh, painted black. And the thought was to, to build gears that would reside within the space. I mean, 3D, like actual built out gears that would look like they were made of, of metal, right? And the, you know, the spur gears that you see in watches and manufacturing, so metaphors of interaction, they're called. So the next step was to, once again, as I've said before, figure out how are we going to do it? You know, we discussed all these different materials, plywood and you know, cardboard and uh, nothing was taken off the table. And um, oddly, strangely, what we landed on was the uh, Owens Corning pink insulation, those large foam sheets that you see at the uh, big home improvement stores. The stuff is uh, very cost effective and very malleable and, and carvable, it turns out. And as luck would have it, LCC has a remarkable scene shop that supports our performing arts department with regard to building scenery for the, the various 
amazing plays that we that we put on through the year. They had just acquired a new plotter, a cutting device, and it basically you could take a four foot by eight foot sheet of whatever and put it in there, and they put a cutting head on the stylus, and and they would program something in, and it would cut it would cut out the shape, and they could build various things for the scenes and the plays. Well, we uh, through some very creative bargaining, getting students employed through the summer, uh, we had a team of students um, employed building giant gears. Uh, many of these gears, I think there were nine objects that wound up inside this coffer. Many of them were comprised of multiple layers of that Owens Corning pink insulation. I think it was like two inches thick. Some of these stacks were like 20 sheets thick because we wanted the gears to just descend from the ceiling, be very dramatic, right? We sent off the file to, um, I think it was Alro Steel that laser cut the fascia of the gears out of aluminum sheet, which was glued onto the, the matching set, the body of the gear itself, and they slathered on this fiberglass. I think it was fiberglass, some type of um, spackle that they hardened, and they sanded it down by hand. Weeks and weeks, you know, students are up there in the heat sanding this down. You know, I had pictures, and uh, they brought their game. I mean, they, they delivered. When these were installed, and the installation itself was the whole story, getting the pieces in there, getting the forms to fit. I mean, these pieces were huge. I mean, it's 10 feet across, a gear 10 feet across. Anyway, um, once they were put in, I, all I can think of is Disney effect. The type of quality that um, you, you stand there and you just, people would generally ask, they wanted the gears to move. They wanted to see the gears move because they thought they would move. Um, so you walk into the room and here's this enormous work of art, hang, you know, coming down from the ceiling. Um, uh, it was very, turned out great. It was very impressive and everybody was, was very proud of it and fiscally sound. I mean, it looks like something that design studio would have just, it, six figures, who knows what it would have cost had we had this done professionally, but it turned out professional looking with all those multiple degrees of expertise on all fronts, bringing their talents to bear. So, the CAD Lab at LCC West. Get your career in gear. RuPaul once said, life is about using the whole box of crayons. If you want to check out what I've been talking about, just visit this episode at lccconnect.org. Art Happens Here is a production of LCC Connect. Thanks for lending us your imagination. This is LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Hey everyone, this is Jim Owens. Coming soon to LCC Connect is a new show called Headroom, where we talk about all things essential to mental health and well-being. To find out more, visit lccconnect.org. Lansing Community College's downtown and west campuses offer conference and event spaces that can accommodate over 500 attendees. LCC offers hybrid meeting capabilities, in-house catering, free event parking, and on-site customer service. For more information about LCC's conference and event spaces, visit lcc.edu and search conference. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect. 
a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ Studio, located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.